Okay, we're live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest, a returning guest. His name is Corey Hughes. Last name is spelled H-U-G-H-E-S. He's been on my show before. We did an episode I titled The Two Oswalds, and it was one of my most listened to shows that people watch it with or listen to it with great interest. Deservedly, because he's done just excellent research into the JFK assassination. Today is October 2nd, so we're coming on to the 60-year anniversary here of this very important event, changed history, changed world history, changed American history, changed the cultural history. But uh, he's just published a new book. Full title is A Warning from History. And you can see it if you're watching this on YouTube or Rockfin or Rumble. You can see the cover, obviously, the grassy knoll and some uh, dark characters overseeing this whole event. Mm -hmm. But uh, he has published this with Chris Matthew. Uh, I've been on his show, Forbidden Knowledge News. And uh, uh, he's gone through just a, tons of documents. I mean, he said he's read, read just an incredible amount of information. It's reflected in the book. And so we're just going to go into that. So, uh, Corey Hughes, welcome back to the show. Hey, I really appreciate you having me on. Thank you so much. Awesome. So for people who may not have heard our earlier interview, can you kind of talk about your background, how you got interested in JFK? I know you've been researching it for a long time and then just putting together uh, this book, the Warren Commission. Sure. So, uh, of course, like everyone else, my interest in Kennedy started with the Kennedy movie JFK by Oliver Stone. Um, I do not hold that film to any factual account. It's a very entertaining uh, piece of propaganda. But um, after that, I kind of had always, you know, kind of kept up with what I considered to be the official conspiracy theory, right? You know, uh, Kennedy was killed by the CIA, blah, 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 all that stuff over Vietnam, you know, and so. Um, I became a cop back in 2005, and I was a cop for about eight and a half years. And when I got out of police work, I felt that I had a skill set that could, I could apply to the Kennedy assassination. So I did, and I spent basically the last five years, this has been the focus of my life. I started in July of 2018 uh, with the documents, and the first thing I did was I made the decision to avoid books at, at all costs. I didn't want to be swayed by anyone's opinion. I got right into the documents directly, uh, and that helped me really kind of come to what I believe is the conclusion of this incredible story. And there's so many actors involved. Like, you really go into people that I wouldn't know, like, were associated with this. We talked about Valenti last time. Very important mm -hmm. cultural figure ended up going to uh, Los Angeles and kind of managing the film industry there overseeing it and uh well one thing i think it's kind of telling is that he ran hollywood from dc his office was in dc it was I never in hollywood and so it, when you get into jack valenti you come to find out that that guy worked with the cia his whole life right there's even a document wow. in his file that conclude that conclusively states this that he had to have his payroll transferred uh from another federal agency onto the white house payroll when he got hired on november 22nd 1963 where he went to work for Johnson directly, uh, in my opinion, he was Johnson's handler in the White House. Uh, so, but Jack Valenti, most we... certainly uh, the most important person in American history that no one ever talks about or even realizes. If you were uh, absorbed anything out of Hollywood between 1966 and 2004, if, if Hollywood helped shape your perception of the world during those years, you were a victim of Jack Valenti and his propaganda through the Motion Picture Association of America. So yes, he has most certainly shaped the lives of all of us here without almost any of us knowing it. It's incredible. You know, I'm so old. I remember watching TV and the major channels. I can't remember which award show, but he used to come out at the beginning, like the boss. Like, right. we're going to have Jack Valenti, and he'd get up and say something, and then they'd go on and do the award show. Like, it was incredible how much power. And you, we went through last time, we went through those amazing pictures that you had of him 
on the day of the assassination, sitting at right. the table, looking totally exhausted, also driving the car. And I think you have chapters in this book about like the escape from Dealey. Um, right, but, right. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's it's just incredible history that no, I've had like I think you'll be like my 18th interview on the JFK assassination from varying. Well, he makes me really. Um, he makes you think of. Uh, do you remember Chuck Barris from yeah. what was it, uh-huh. the Gong Show, who Gong claimed show, yeah. claimed to be a CIA assassin? Um, yeah. I believe him. Right. So when I came to understand who Jack Valenti was, it made the statements by Chuck Barris that he was a CIA assassin much more plausible. Although there's really no information on Chuck. I've tried looking. There's really nothing out there on him. But right, yes. there was a movie, right? Wasn't there a movie with? Uh, yeah, Confessions of a Dangerous Mind. Confessions of a Dangerous Mind. So, but uh, Hollywood is not what people think. It is definitely a tool of the CIA. Uh, initially, really controlled by Lou Wasserman, handed off to Jack Valenti. Um, and now you've got uh, Glickman is running the MPAA. I've never looked into him. I promise you, he works for the CIA. I'll have to do some in-depth digging into his background one day. But uh, I mean, that's the that's the thing about this whole event assassination. Everybody has some kind of intel spook connection. If they're not oh yeah, themselves, right? Everybody, like, everybody. Yeah. All of Kennedy's guys were basically CIA. Marty Underwood and um. Uh, Moyers, Bill Moyers, like all these guys were working with the CIA, right? Um, the CIA pretty much owned everybody. It seems like after World War II, uh, between, so between 45 and 47, allegedly there's no intelligence community, but really that was the most important two years in forming the CIA ever. Um, and in 47, it seems like they just went out and got everybody, anybody they could in any industry, especially if you worked in publishing, if you worked in any kind of media, they just ate you up right away. You know, um, I recently had a long conversation with Johnny Vedmore, who's done a lot of studying into Ms. Magazine, which was founded by, um, Gloria Steinem and a woman named Elizabeth Forsling Harris. Harris, I talk about in the book, she... 35 years after the assassination tries to retroactively give Jack Valenti an alibi and it fails miserably because I debunk her alibi just based on the statements of the people she claimed to have been with during the time of the motorcade. Uh, Elizabeth Forsling Harris was the uh, working for Sam Bloom at Sam Bloom's advertising agency. She was the point of contact for Kenny O'Donnell to Sam Bloom's office, who Sam Bloom was on the board of the Dallas Citizens Council and and Kenny O'Donnell was in direct contact with him via Elizabeth Forsling Harris to uh, establish the motorcade, right? So um, Elizabeth Forsling Harris, clearly CIA, you know, retroactively, like I said, in 1988, tries to give a alibi to Jack Valenti, whose alibi involved, because for the audience, if I'm kind of getting ahead of myself, Jack Valenti was the shooter on the grassy knoll, the quintessential shooter on the grassy knoll who took off Kennedy's head in frame 313 of the Zapruder film. Um, in order to understand uh, that, you have to understand a, a complex background of Valenti, you know, which involves his mob background, his CIA background, um, and I believe his involvement in other assassinations throughout history. But um, Elizabeth Forsling Harris, I think, is such a fascinating person because she um, clearly, besides her intelligence connections, the connection to Sam Bloom and her being the connection between Kenny O'Donnell makes her an absolutely key person in the pl- in the plotting of the assassination, and at least as far as the coordination of the motorcade goes. And the coordination of the motorcade, which fell to the Dallas Citizens Council, the handle uh, was quite controversial because initially it was not supposed to go through Dealey Plaza. It was supposed to go to the Women's Building, is what it was called. Um, but the Women's Building would have, that, that route in particular, would have bypassed Dealey Plaza. And at this point, point in late October, uh, you have 
allegedly Oswald's supposed to have been working at the Texas School Book Depository by now. So the story had already been started to formulate in October um, and changing the location to the women's building would have wrecked everything. So Sam Bloom uh, threw a personal fit over this and got the motorcade to stay en route to the Trademark, which was another CIA building owned and operated by a company called Permindex, which also was connected to the Trademark in New Orleans that Clay Shaw worked with. But Permindex was ultimately a Mossad front company um, that had Alan Dulles, James Angleton, um, all kinds of mafioso like Joe Bonanno, uh, Mo Dalitz, also guys like um, Trump's lawyer in the 1980s, Roy Cohn, all sat on the board of Permindex, you know. So Permanex was a Mossad front company that organized the, it was like the oversight board is from what I can tell in reference to the assassination, the large scale planning, right? And from there, the money got funneled through a company in uh, a sub company called Centro Mondial Commercial, which was run by a guy named Louis Bloomfield out of Montreal. Uh, and then we have easily provable connections between um, Louis Bloomfield in Montreal to Clay Shaw down in New Orleans. And ultimately Clay Shaw will end up being in New Orleans on November 22nd with a guy named Erwin Heyman who was a representative of the Jewish agency in Switzerland, who was in Dallas on that day. So uh, I kind of got off a little little track here, but well, uh, that kind of happens often. The connections often. are incredible because Clay Shaw was just supposed to be, you know, a simple businessman. There's all videos of him, and but he's fully connected. Fully Ferry, connected. That guy is so formally, ruthless, it's unbelievable. Yeah. When you come to understand his connections to like the ADL and the, through the Schlumberger Corporation and his relationship with the Stern family, right? Like the banking, you know, ba the banking clan, Stern family, who um, basically they paid for his entire defense, right? So the Stern oh. family paid for Clay Shaw's defense. This was actually discovered by Michael Collins Piper in his book, Final Judgment, which is like uh, the first book anyone should ever read on the assassination. Um, but yeah, the, uh, the or whatever Schlumberger Schlumberger is just a huge multinational right. mining so, billions of dollars. Like they're right. around this whole event. Like so Schlumberger, rich Schlumberger was run by a guy named Jean de Manil. Jean de Manil sat on the board of directors of this Permindex, this Mossad front company. Um, he lived in Houston. He was like a big socialite. And he, to this very day, the, um, the, the Manil, um, gallery still hosts like a, it's a huge art gallery in Houston. So very influential guy. And he happened to own the, the Schlumberger uh, Arms Depot in Houma, Louisiana, that the CIA was using to store surplus weapons, right? So all the World War II surplus gets back to America and it gets stuck into these depots around the country. Well, starting in 1945, like the, as soon as the war was over, uh, David Ben-Gurion, along with a guy named Rudolf Sonborn, formed what's called the Sonborn Institute, which really was a front organization as a cover for this large-scale smuggling operation that involved breaking into these depots and arms depots around the country, stealing all the arms, and then shipping them back to Israel. Now, we've all heard about the Homa, Louisiana depot that David Ferry, Sergio Arcacha, Gordon Novell, and Leighton Martins allegedly broke into in 1962. Well, they did do that. And the story was that all those arms and the weapons were supposed to be going to the Cubans to fight um, the to fight Castro, right, to overthrow Castro. But that's a lie. All those arms and weapons got sold to a company in Virginia called InterArmco, which was another company run by Samuel Cummings, a very well-known CIA agent in the arms trade, uh, who also was connected to a guy named Enrico Fratoli, who sat on the board of Permindex. Uh, so all the, all the weapons that were supposed to go to the anti-Castro Cubans and all the arms that were supposed to go to the anti-Castro Cubans, they never did. They got deflected to Israel so they could fight the Palestinians. So at the Bay of Pigs, when people wonder why it failed, it failed because they didn't have, on the ground, there was no arms and there was no money. There was no 
infantry that could handle um, taking on Castro because all of that support went to Israel. And so that's one of the aspects of the assassination no one ever talks about. People still have this myth that, like, the assassination was about Castro and some other things. And no, like, the Cubans are so irrelevant in the Kennedy assassination, it's unbelievable. Nobody gave a shit about the Cubans. All that stuff was a front. All the Cuban organizations that were being run, especially the ones that were being run out of 544 Camp Street um, at, at Bannister's office, those were CIA fronts for raising and laundering money. That's it. Like, those guys didn't care about the Cubans whatsoever. Sergio Arcacha actually got fired from the FRD, the Fronte Revolutionary Democratico, uh, which was one of the Cuban organizations, because he stole all the money, right? So these guys didn't care about Cuba one bit. Um, so anytime you hear Kennedy researchers talk about the Cubans, the anti-Castro Cubans, it's a distraction. It's completely irrelevant to the story. But aren't they around? Wasn't there Mongoose and all those other people and that the, the real read, like the JFK sealed his fate by blowing up, like blowing the Bay of Pigs invasion? Like, I mean, because Ferry was pissed off about it, right? Ferry was real pissed off about that. But the Bay of Pigs invasion from, you know, I, I've read some conflicting things about the Bay of Pigs, and it seems like it was almost sabotaged intentionally by the CIA as it was going on. I mean, it it almost feels like it was some kind of red herring. I haven't spent enough time on it to be able to give you anything definitive here, but, um, you know, my, my BS detector is, like, going off big time when I look at the official stories of what happened at the Bay of Pigs. I mean, officially, uh, supposedly it didn't succeed because they didn't have, Kennedy didn't send air support. Well, that's, that's kind of a story. misnomer because, like, the CIA sent air support. They had their own pilots, like David Ferry who were involved with the uh, invasion, right? So it was that they didn't have weapons on the ground. They didn't have the ground support. That was the problem. But in as far as like the motivations, I don't know, but I can tell you with certainty after the Bay of Pigs, Cuba was still being used as a jump off point for smuggling operations. The I, To me, the idea that Cuba would still be used for smuggling operations under the nose of Castro without him knowing about it doesn't ring true to me whatsoever. And the idea that we spent 50 years trying to knock off this dictator on a dinky island 90 miles off the coast unsuccessfully just reeks of utter BS. Like, I believe the whole thing was an affront. I believe he was a smuggling partner with the CIA his entire life. I don't think we are ever trying to... All the stories about trying to put hits out on Castro, I think are complete cover stories to distract from something else. What that something else is, the, I don't know, but... If you look at the Americans' imperial foreign invasions over after World War II, they were successful everywhere else. <laughs> Chile, yeah. Iran, Iraq. I mean, we can just go down the list of how many uh, Libya, right? So why couldn't they just do this rinky-dink island right. that is 90 miles away from our shore? I mean, it wouldn't take that much. Like, So it's you're right. There's something suspicious about like the whole Cuban. Maybe they just got burnt out by the Cuban Missile Crisis or something. Or it is odd. Like the the Cuban military doesn't. I mean, it's nothing like the U.S. The U.S. (laughs) is like a giant, a Goliath to a gnat. I mean, it's right. It just makes me feel like the whole thing was a sham. Um, You know, and like Honduras, we uh, we uh, subverted almost every major country's like elections, (laughs) but they couldn't do Cuba. It's weird. And I think, um, if I'm not mistaken, I think it was Castro who came out and said that he was like a CIA agent his whole life. I mean, like, I don't know, man, but like the whole thing is just fishy. And so when it comes to Castro and communism, this is another thing that I, that I highlight in the book is that the Fair Play for Cuba Committee, which is allegedly the proof that Oswald was a communist, that was a front organization by the CIA from day one. Uh, the obfuscation of their history, um, trying to blame it on a guy named Vincent T. Lee. Uh, out of Tampa um, is is more distraction. The Fair Play for Cuba Committee was actually founded by Richard Gibson uh, and Robert Tabor, who were working with CBS and were both most certainly uh, CIA. Um, Richard Gibson was outed 
um, by the JFK record dumps in 2012 as having been a prolific spy for the agency. So uh, when you look into the founding of the Fair Play for Cuba Committee, they were founded in April of 1960 as a pro-Cuban, pro-Castro organization because the CIA was trying to pull Castro into our sphere of influence, right? But he didn't become a communist until December of 61. Right, so you got like eighteen months where they're supporting him as not as a cat, not as a cat communist, but as a freedom fighter. Right, that's what the Fair Play for Cuba community was doing. But what does he do when he becomes a communist? He betrays everyone. He should have been, on paper at least, betraying the Fair Play for Cuba committee, Fair Play for Cuba committee also. But what do they do at that point? Instead of saying, "Oh, he betrayed us," they just switch and start supporting him as a communist. Are you kidding me? This is ridiculous. This is COINTELPRO all day long. This is them trying to recruit other people in America to keep tabs on communists. That's what it was. And when you dig deeper into Lee Harvey Oswald, you'll find he had zero connection to the Fair Play for Cuba committee and that he basically was a patsy uh, for Carrie Thornley, who had done all the co- all the writing and all the contacting of Fair Play for Cuba committee, the printing of the flyers at Jones Printing. All that was done by Carrie Thornley and handed off to Lee Harvey Oswald to go hand out on the street corner, right? So... And that leads us up to the incident on um, incident on the street with Carlos Brunier when he's arrested for handing out the flyers and all this stuff on, on the 9th. You have another incident very similar to that where he's handing out flyers and he ends up on WDSU talking to John Corporon, um, uh, New Orleans, right? So he's all over the television saying how he's a Marxist-Leninist. And then he has the debate with Carlos Brunier. Like all this stuff was set up. And when right. you go William into like day is the guy's name. Nobody knows his name. Right. He was a spook too, right? Yeah. When you he go into William... responsible getting on TV. Correct. When you get into William Gauday, you'll find that William Gauday is most certainly a longtime CIA employee. He was in charge of uh, Latin American operations in as far as propaganda. He he ran a, the Latin American report, which was basically a CIA magazine that was used to spread propaganda in South America. But he happened to um, get his visa to travel to Mexico City on the same day, September 17th, that Oswald allegedly got his visa to travel to Mexico City. Uh, another guy named uh, David Pierce Magyar, also a friend of David Ferry, he got his permit to, uh, or his visa to travel to Mexico City on September 17th. So you got three guys allegedly, well, all working with the CIA, right? Allegedly getting their visa on the same day. But as it turns out, um, Gaudet not only got his visa on the same day as Oswald, but he was directly responsible for the chain of events that got Oswald onto television on WDSU, right? So Gaudet has actually been interviewed in the past. He's actually been in some documentaries from like 30, 40 years ago. Um, But his name has really kind of been overlooked as one of the key handlers. I would consider him like a handler of sorts. He is way above you know, the operation kind of, and he probably had contact directly with Clay Sean, these guys, but he clearly was keeping an eye on Oswald as he was on the street corner every time he was out there as per his own words. So he's he was most certainly an observer and probably, uh, he, he most certainly knew all of the Cubans being that he was, that you know, in charge of Latin American operations, right? He knew all the Cubans who were in New Orleans. He knew Sergi Arcacha, and he knew all these guys, Carlos Caroga, and all those guys who were hanging around with David Ferry. So to be that involved and know everybody and be a key mover in some of the uh, activities, but then to deny participation in the larger framework of the assassination, to me, is ridiculous. You know, not yeah. that everybody who was involved knew what they were involved with, you know? Um, a lot of the lower level guys doing things did things that I'm sure they didn't know were connected to an assassination. Like when Frank Sheeran dropped off the rifles to David Ferry, uh, up in Baltimore, he probably had no idea at the time what he was doing, you know, but we find out later on, he realized that those were the rifles that were probably used in Dealey Plaza. So. Right. And Ferry is a very important character. So 
the way the movie is portrayed is that he's some kind of low level guy who's got a thing and then gets murdered or whatever, some kind of strange character. Yeah. But he is really connected with everybody. Shaw, connected with everybody. And the thing Ma, about David Ferry that the thing that David Ferry got me that really kind of struck out stuck out was like that he um after the assassination, so many people got rewarded. Jack Valenti rewarded. You know, so many people got rewarded and they moved up a, a career path. Not David Ferry. David Ferry seems to have his participation seems to have been purely blackmail related. Um, when you talk to his roommates after the assassination and guys like um, Jules Rico Kimball or guys like Raymond Brochiers. Brochiers, yeah. Yeah, bro- like they're like, this guy was constantly busy doing stuff for the agency and he never had a dime in his pocket. You know, so um, he was clearly being blackmailed Uh, in the David Ferry files. They talk about how they had film of him having sex with an underage black girl. Um, And so that was most certainly one of probably many things that were being held over his head. He was most certainly a uh, a child molester. He got tied up in a case with a guy named um, Al Landry um, that he had basically been molesting. He'd been molesting all those kids. He used hypnosis basically to get these kids naked and he would do things to them and for some reason, they all continued to hang out with him, like some sort of weird, like Stockholm syndrome. So, really it's strange weird too. Like that Landry guy was around him all the time. That's weird. All the time. And the yeah. mind control is weird too. The aspect of it too. Yes, I think. Um, knew this stuff. Yeah, that that aspect of the assassination gets blown out of proportion a lot. A lot of people like to talk about like MK Ultra. It was Oswald and MK Ultra, and, all that. and I think that's like way out there. Totally wrong. But there is hypnotism that pops up throughout the assassination on a couple of different fronts. Uh, so. Yeah, it's interesting. interesting. What are the other fronts other than uh, than Ferry? So you got Bill, you have Bill Demar, who was a um, kind of uh, he was a hypnotist that worked for uh, Jack Ruby, and allegedly his hypnosis was somehow involved with his blackmailing of Dallas cops. Um, so because he would have like a stage show and he would hypnotize people on stage and get them to do stuff, and uh, but then you have a doctor, I believe, down in New Orleans in, named Rivera who Hank Alberelli wrote about this in his book, High Strangeness um, and the Kennedy assassination. And he talks about this guy Rivera and some people he interacted with. And he might've actually been in the uh, operating room at Bethesda when they did the autopsy, um, how he was dropping LSD in people and hypnotizing them with a ring that he wore. And like, so yeah, there's, it pops up on a couple different fronts. If you haven't read anything by Hank Alberelli, he is amazing. Um, he came, his ability to pull up some data is just incredible. He was never able to really put together the dots that he dug up, but he did an amazing job, especially in his latest book, Coup in Dallas. Unfortunately, Hank's dead. Uh, he died a year or two ago, but Coup in Dallas is a phenomenal book. It's one of those, like one of the handful of books that's like, should be mandatory reading in the Kennedy assassination. He talks about this stuff in depth. And you even mentioned Jack Martin was like committed in the hospital for, for LSD. So this stuff is around. I mean, yeah. Jack Martin's a guy. He's a weird one because the name Jack Martin was clearly being used by multiple people. So Edward Suggs was not the only Jack Martin in New Orleans. That Jack Martin in New Orleans was also <clears throat> undoubtedly Jean-Pierre Lafitte at some point. Uh, Jean-Pierre Lafitte is an, he's an he's another mystery. He's an amazing, amazing CIA big shot. Um, he was one of two people who used the alias QJ Wynn, the other being Otto Scorzani. Um, but... Uh, he had a personal relationship with James Angleton, dropped acid with James Angleton. Um, but he uh, most certainly, when you read some of the, when you read some things about Jack Martin in New Orleans, you come to find out that Edward Suggs was kind of a, he was a a doctor who kind of had been wanted for doing backroom abortions. He was an alcoholic. He was a real, he was a scumbag. Um, 
and he didn't really have any tactical training at all. Uh, but when you talk to, uh, there are some interviews of Jack Martin that appear in the literature where he's talking about all kinds of tactical stuff that he would never know because he didn't have that background. So um, the suspicion by Hank Alberelli was that that was jump your Lafitte um, and that we should do some much more research into who Jack Martin actually was. Right. So, God, it's just such a strange thing. And Ferry was always flying around picking stuff up and worked for Marcello. Like he was on a paid, paid monthly paid stipend, right? Yeah, he was working for G. Ray Gill. G. Ray Gill was um, Carlos Marcello's attorney. But come on, he was working for Carlos Marcello via G. Ray Gill. You know, uh, he had to have that little bit of plausible deniability, I guess. Um, but yeah, Ferry, so Ferry allegedly was in G. Ray Gill's office at noon on November 22nd, as per Alice Ghidros, who is G. Ray Gill's, uh, assistant or secretary. Uh, but she's totally lied, right? So everybody who provided an alibi for David Ferry lied. Like they were all dirt. Like, you can't trust anybody who's associated with Carlos Marcello, including FBI agent Regis Kennedy, right? Who was supposed to be like the Cuban contact for the FBI there. So he was involved in all this stuff too. I'll probably get to him in a future book. Uh, but yeah, you can't trust any of the people who provided an alibi for David Ferry. They're all working for the mob. They all lie. And David Ferry was provably in Dallas once you put together the string of events that I go over from the descriptions behind the grassy knoll, connecting it all through the tippet shooting. Um, and all that is outlined in the book between chapters like 6 and 10. Uh, th that's basically that chunk of time between 1230 when the assassination starts and what happens after the tippet shooting and the uh, at the tip at the Texas theater which is some fascinating stuff. I love the stories of the, of the Texas theater and Tippett is really fascinating how they, how they did that. And really the, the, the identities of the shooters in the Tippett, they become obvious. You can't, when you study other things, right? When you, this is one big problem I have with a lot of Kennedy researchers. Like you can't just study one thing and expect to understand that thing. There's a lot of things on the outside that support it. Right. And the Tippett shooting is like no different. And you really, when you come to understand the relationships in New Orleans, especially between David Ferry and Carrie Thornley in particular, and Sergio Arcacha, um, it really becomes obvious of who was involved in the tippet shooting and then the series of events afterwards on the Houston trip, like the Winterland trip to the ice skating rink, as particularly the phone calls made to radio stations WDSU and WSHO, uh, um, those conclusively, to me at least, link Carrie Thornley to the phone calls that were made from the Alamo Motel. So this it, really, when you understand the relationships and you start to see this like mesh network, and then you look at certain phone calls that were made from certain places at certain times, it becomes obvious who was where and who was calling who and why. So right. no, they're all, everybody's getting, getting their alibi together. Right. So yep. everybody, yep. George Bush senior, I wasn't there. You know, I was 10 miles away, <laughs> but I wasn't, I wasn't actually in Dallas. Damn it. You know, these yeah, I'm, funny statements. Are... I'm convinced he was in Dealey Plaza, but, at the time, George Bush was a, he was a money guy. He was, um, he was in the position he was in with intelligence, not because he was like some super spy, but because he had money, right? And the oil people and him and his father, his father had, you know, deep connections with intelligence at the time back, you know, pr probably prior to World War II. So, um, yeah. Um, and then he's a wasp like elite Brahmin from the East coast. You know I mean? I think that he was probably groomed for his job as the head of the CIA and man presidency from the beginning. I would think so. I would think so. That makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. Um, and, and then when you look at things like uh, the fact that Jack Valenti worked for these guys at humble oil, when he was 15 years old, wow. you talk about being was, groomed. Yeah. Incredible. Like he was yeah. in there for, from the very beginning. It's really incredible. Valenti's yeah, story there. is a, 
and he's gay too like it's just so <laughs> strange like these guys are all gay too like shaw and fairy i don't know what fairy is is I, well, here's another thing about Ferry that I discovered along the way is that and uh, he was, according to his um, taxes in 1949, he had two dependents and was said to have been married. And so I was able to I never was able to locate the identity of any wife, but I sure was able to identify a David Ferry Jr. who was a lieutenant colonel in the Marine Corps in 1963, which is in the primary David Ferry file. That everyone has had for 20 years, you know, so the idea that David Ferry having a son has never been talked about is crazy to me because it's right there in the pages of the of the of the um, David Ferry file, you know, so. And there's a lot about Ferry. I didn't know that he was the one who flew to pick up Marcella when RFK kicked him out of the country. Yeah. That also <laughs> is another kind of important point of this anger towards the Kennedy brothers, you know, is like this yeah. kind of humiliating a mob boss like. I'm sending, where did he send him to? Honduras or something like that. Yeah, Guatemala. Guatemala. <laughs> it was so funny yeah, so. because because that whole thing with Guatemala, like um, they had actually paid somebody in Guatemala to like come up with like a fake birth certificate for Carlos Marcelo because he is not from Guatemala, right? Right, and I so, think he was a naturalized citizen of Italy. I mean, still an Italian right, citizen or something. Right, right. Like and so I don't remember why they even had to do that. I'll have to go back and check that. But like... Um, then Robert Kennedy was like, oh yeah, you're from Guatemala. Great. Well, you can go back there. And they sent him off like a big screw you, which really is kind of hilarious in hindsight, yeah. but, uh, that they would do that to him. But yeah, uh, David Ferry went and scoops him up and brings him back. And it seems like all that, uh, immigration stuff for Carlos Marcelo went away after that. Yeah, no, it's, it's such a strange, it's such a mar- remarkable story. And a lot of people don't know, like you even write in your book, Carrie, you would have started at Carrie Thornley. Mm-hmm. He was just a remarkable character too. Like his, yeah. Arc. I mean, tell tell more about him. It's just so really Kerry Thornley's a weird guy. So he allegedly um, joins the Marines back in like 1956 or 57, but he doesn't actually get sent off to boot camp until like 58 or 59. And it's in 59 that he is uh, paired with Oswald uh, Marine Air Squadron number nine if i'm not mistaken and it's at uh santa Ana, california um so this is at a time when oswald had already been to atsugi japan and comes back after that he meets carrie thornley carrie thornley then gets sent to be in oswald's unit in atsugi when oswald is back in the states so we have some really interesting stuff that goes on with carrie thornley because Obviously, he's intelligence at this point. By 59, he's in the Marines. By the time he hits boot camp, I'm convinced that both Oswald and Kerry Thornley are both recruited by intelligence before they're even in the fucking Marines. That's why they went to the Marines. They were sent to the Marines as part of their intelligence training. So um, it turns out that in um, October of 1960, you have Kerry Thornley in Atsugi, Japan, and he's going by an alias of Rick Thornley. Why he's using an alias, I don't know, but he's using the alias of Rick Thornley, and he's claiming to be a photographer. And he meets a guy named Ronald Schwinghammer, who is also a Marine out there. And Schwinghammer talks to Garrison or whom, or the FBI or whomever he talks to after, uh, and basically says that he met Rick Thornley, and Rick Thornley was writing a book called The Idle Warriors, and it was a book about the Marine Squadron and Lee Harvey Oswald. However... 
when they ask Harry Thornley about when he finds out about Oswald's defection to the Soviet Union, he claims that he didn't find out about it till he was on a train back from Atsugi, right? He was on a train somewhere coming home after October of 1960. So he lies about when he finds out about Oswald. He lies about, you know, doing research on Oswald in Atsugi to, to Jim Garrison. Then when he comes back, he ends up in uh, New Orleans in January of 61, or February of 61. February of 61 is an interesting time frame for him to pick because literally just a week or two prior to his alleged arrival in New Orleans, we have an incident at the Bolton Ford dealership in New Orleans involving um, clearly uh, Lawrence Howard and another man who was impersonating Lee Harvey Oswald because they attempt to buy a bunch of Jeeps for uh, the Friends of Democratic Cuba based out of 544 Camp Street, which is uh, Bannister's building. And he is trying to get Jeeps, a uh, quote for Jeeps, uh, to send down there to help the revolution, right? So he gives the name of Lee Oswald and Lawrence Howard, who was a heavyset Mexican with a pockmarked face. He had bumps all over his face like he had moles. Um, very clear cut that this man is seen all over the place with Oswald for a two-year period leading up to the assassination. I'll get to that in a second. But this incident in 1961... Um, I is coincides kind of when Kerry Thornley gets to New Orleans and the setup of Lee Harvey Oswald really begins because between January of 61 and the assassination, there are literally hundreds of incidents where Lee Harvey Oswald allegedly interacted with people and that he left an impression on them, whether he was talking about guns or talking about communism or talking about having a Russian wife or having lived in the Soviet Union between January of 61 and November of 63, which is almost, what, three years, right? It's, a, it's two and a half years, a long-ass time. This setup involving two men, Kerry Thornley and William Seymour, and for those two years, they were going all over the country impersonating Lee Harvey Oswald, leaving this false trail to Oswald. Uh, whether it was talking about, like I said, talking about guns or communism, they went out of their way to do things and to say things to draw attention to themselves. So that once Oswald was seen on television... A hundred plus people got a hold of the FBI saying, hey, I interacted with this guy in the weeks leading up to the assassination, and it was never Oswald. Not once. I've gone through every single incident with Lee Harvey Oswald, and none of them were Oswald. All of them were either, and I base this depending on who they were with or descriptions and character and like, uh, were they abrasive or not? Because Oswald was a very nice guy. He was never abrasive. He was never confrontational. But Kerry Thornley would go places and be an outright dick all the time, right? And people would say it was Oswald. And oftentimes he was lazy. He didn't shave every day. Oswald did. So Kerry Thornley would go somewhere. He'd have three, four days of stubble on his face. You'll never see a picture of Oswald with three or four days of stubble, ever. Doesn't exist because the guy was so clean cut and neat and tidy all the time. So I began to use these descriptors and various things to separate these Oswald sightings. And then the other set of Oswald sightings was clearly William Seymour, like at the rifle range. And we know this because he was always seen with a large husky Latino, often described as having a pockmarked face. And that man is Lawrence Howard. He's the only man in the entire assassination story that matches these descriptions. Large, a heavy set, dark complexion, big feet, long hair, very hairy. Like you put together all these different descriptions from different people, you got a clear cut picture of Lawrence Howard. So, so um, oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, so Thornley is in the strangest places. He's writing about Oswald like he's important. And mm -hmm. it's just so bizarre. <laughs> and he is, people who think they're seeing Oswald are seeing Thornley. That's really what it is. Yeah. So Russo, who's played by Kevin Bacon, 
you know, there's a famous scene in JFK where they're right. like, with the O'Keefe, uh, you know, talking, right. <clears throat> he thinks he's seeing Oswald. It's not Oswald. It's the no. And I go into great detail in that scene, in that situation with, um, where he thinks that he sees Oswald at this party in New Orleans, um, in September. Now, I think it was determined the party was September 25th, if I'm not mistaken. So, um, he's at, the, they're at this party in, in New Orleans and allegedly he sees Lee Harvey Oswald and there's a bunch of Cubans there and the Cubans are all like, uh, having fun and drinking beer and this and that. And then everybody clears out and then it's left with Clem Bertrand, who's Clay Shaw. It's left with Leon Oswald, who was Carrie Thornley and David Ferry and Perry Russo. And the three of them, why they decided to openly talk about this stuff in front of Perry Russo. I really don't know. I call it hubris or whatever. Um, but they start talking about rifle trajectories and having crossfire and who to frame for and all this stuff. Um, but the description that he gives of Oswald is that Oswald had a couple days worth of stubble on his face, right? So at this point, uh, it was clearly to me, uh, Kerry Thornley. However, the further I dug into this, the more I, the, then I came to realize that Perry Russo had actually been to David Ferry's house three or four times leading up to that party in September he had met this other roommate um, all of those times, three or four times. And he said prior to the party that he had a big beard. Like it was a just a big, like a beatnik. He, the guy, he described him like a dirty beatnik. And of course, we have pictures of Carrie Thornley, the dirty beatnik, who was dirty the roommate of Carrie Thornley. Right. Yeah. And so, yeah, to me, it was pretty clear cut that that was never Oswald in New Orleans there. It was Carrie Thornley. And every single incident that I ended up going through that people are convinced was Oswald, including his jobs that he held, never Oswald. Oswald's nowhere. He's a complete ghost. The only interactions that I believe were the Oswald, who we believe is Lee Harvey Oswald, was actually the ones with George DeMornshield and the Paynes and, you know, Max Gold and a couple of the other people who were around the, uh, the white Russian community who had interacted. Like, that was Oswald. Nothing else. And you don't, you Nothing don't think he Oswald. stayed at the boarding house? No, you don't not think a that, chance. All that's just is totally fake. Totally fake. Yeah, it was Carrie Thornley staying at the boarding houses. And uh, so the one at uh, 621 North Marsalis, okay, the one at 621 North Marsalis ran by Mary Bledsoe, who actually also happens to be the witness to Lee Harvey Oswald being on the bus later, right? So she's his allegedly his boarding house woman, right? So, but right, so no, she's clearly providing some stories. So everybody has these alibis or BS stories in the JFK. Thing. Right, like, right. So basically, with Carrie Thornley, he receives the, the, the tip for me there was he received a phone call. And um, Mary Bledsoe is not supposed to know much about Oswald, but she seems to know that his wife is Russian and all this stuff. And then, he, then she slips up when she testifies to the Warren Commission deposition that the woman who called him spoke in Spanish. Oh, really? That's fascinating. Well, who in our cast of characters uh, would be calling Carrie Thornley and speaking in Spanish? What woman? And now there's only one woman in the cast of characters connected directly to Jack Ruby who would be speaking Spanish to Carrie Thornley, and that's Candy Barr. So that kind of gave me the inkling that it was never Oswald staying there. Oswald only knew a couple words of Spanish, and we know that because of Nelson Delgado, who he was in the Marines with, right? So, um, so yeah, it was definitely not him there. And then when I really dug into the boarding house at 1026 North Beckley, that was the most obvious that it was never him. Uh, and then when I connected the dots on Tippett, it became obvious that the person who shot Tippett was the same person who was living at the boarding house. So that eliminated Oswald because Oswald, out of... At the time that he was allegedly staying at the, the 1026 North Beckley boarding house, when you look at the dates that he was actually confirmed to have stayed in Fort Worth, that was like 75% of the dates. 
that only left like three or four days in the entire month that Oswald was alleged to have even stayed there at all. So obviously Oswald never stayed there. He was staying at the Payne's house the entire time. It was Carrie Thornley staying there. And uh, who'd they say it was? It was O.H. Lee who that was living there, right? But O.H. Lee, see, we have the receipts from a guy named Herbert Leon Lee who had been staying in room O at the boarding house starting October 1st through about mid-November, okay? So um, I'm sorry, but the alias of O.H. Lee, but then we find out someone named Herbert Leon Lee in room O was staying there. That's way too big of a coincidence for me. That to me is them retroactively trying to fit documents that they had to the new story, right? Because the O.H. Lee alias didn't come out right away. It didn't come out for years like everything else in the story. It was never up front on the news or anything else on day one, to my knowledge. Therefore... Um, it was just another rewriting of history um, involving yeah. Herbert Leon Lee, who admits that he was there. He was tracked down and lived in Shreveport. So, yeah, the entire story about the boarding house is completely bunk. Um, right. There's just so many fictional myth- mythological pieces to this whole thing. Oswald yeah. and the bus. Like, oh, then he shot the president. Then he ran back to the boarding house. Well, none of that's even relevant. It's just, right. And see, you know, the, level of, the level of shenanigans involved in this, as I call them, uh, the level of crazy... Um, tradecraft and um, misdirection. That was the biggest thing that I was really worried about because in with this book, because the, my my take on this is so drastically different from every other take that's ever been. I'm, I was just scared that it's going to be um, not overwhelmingly accepted, despite the level of documentation I have. You know. Yeah, and you emphasize just totally different characters than I've heard. Everybody talks about E. Howard Hunt is the shooter. And all this other stuff, like right. I mean, you mentioned him, I think in the Carrie Thornley section, he had a he was Gary Kirstein, right, like right, and I think that's even a rewriting of history too. I don't even think that Carrie Thornley believed that. I think once he came up, once he came to understand the name of E. Howard Hunt, he inserted him into the story. So that's that's my take there. And I mean, Carrie Thornley didn't stop even with the whole, you know, the the death of JFK. He went on to become a Discordian, like he was like one of the popes or the heads of this Discordian. Kind yeah, of and the weird thing is, like, it turns out he started he started coming up with the Discordian stuff in the fifties. Like, oh wow, yeah, he started coming up with he started writing some of that stuff way before this Kennedy assassination. Like, he was I don't see I don't understand really. Like, I I kind of understand the CIA, but when it comes down to the nuts and bolts, I don't understand the CIA. What the hell are they doing with the Discordian movement? I mean, are they just trying to come up with weird counterculture movements for the sake of experimentation or to keep tabs on people or what? I don't know. But what what the CIA was doing with these weird organizations in the 60s and then connecting them to like the hippie movement and the LSD and all that stuff is like, holy shit. These guys just they, they created our entire counterculture, right. whether intentionally or unintentionally. Who knows? Right, it's incredible. Like this guy is part of the counterculture of Robert Anton Wilson. All these other characters are involved in Discordianism. Yeah, I mean, it's really something else. Did he? Did Thornley have like a elite background? He's a Mormon, right? He's born in a Mormon. Thing. <laughs> yeah, I but I don't know how much of an influence that may have had on him. And I really, a lot of people try to connect a lot of Mormon stuff to conspiracy stuff, and I'm like, I don't really, I just don't understand it, so I don't really see if there's a connection there. But that might have had a thing. But one thing I don't get is like he enrolled in the Marines, but then he didn't go to the Marines for two years, and then when he was actually in, he was in for less than two years, just long enough to meet Oswald and do all that stuff, and then go to New Orleans. Strange, very strange. Very strange. Just tons of pen names and just a weird curious guy heavily involved in the jfk assassination that few yep. other people really mention i mean I, I don't think 
other people found him to be important, but it is important if they were just impersonating Oswald all the time, like all those stories. Like he, Oswald was everywhere, <laughs> almost two right. places at once, too. Right. Like, so um, from what that. I can from what I can tell, <clears throat> um, the plot to kill Kennedy was formulated sometime around February or March of 1963. Uh, it had to have been because the uh, shipments of the rifle and the handgun occurred in March. So the setup had to have occurred prior to that. However, they were setting Oswald up for something going back to 61, two, two plus years before, I believe, the plotting for the assassination started. So why would they be using Oswald's name to buy Jeeps in New Orleans? Why would they be setting him up as a communist at all while he's still in the Soviet Union? Why would they be doing any of this? The only thing I could rack my brain to think of, and I think the the, the Mexico City trip allegedly, uh, I think this kind of nails this. Is I think they were just trying to, I think they were trying to repurpose him to get into Cuba. I think that's what they were initially trying to do, and then when the assassination plot started to arise, they just shifted it to Oswald. Yeah, we've got um, that yeah, and why? That's that that calls for too much speculation on my part, you know. Um, I'm not he sure seems to be part of like a long-term program. Oh yeah, of handlers, and it's unbelievable. Like he had an unbelievable life, dead at 24. Like he's all over the place. That Sugi, Russia. <laughs> I mean, all kinds of New York, then right. Fort Worth. I mean, it's in his life. And one thing I can, want to emphasize: I don't think we know him. I don't think we know Oswald at all. Like I don't think we know anything about Lee Harvey Oswald. What he thought about anything, what he felt about anything, because it seems he, he got into this plot as a child before he even had any say in the matter. Obviously, his parents had a say in the matter, right? So, I don't believe I any of the history. Yeah, I don't believe any of the history that, about his father or anything. Right. Interesting, because his father—he didn't really have a father, right? And you mentioned in the book, yeah. like, these guys were looking for fatherless figures, right. young men who were impressionable. They're easier to control. So, I think he was part of a broader operation because there was some, like, an, either an attempt in Chicago on Kennedy that involved a character like. Oswald, where he was right, like Thomas a young Thomas uh, Valley. That was the right. that was the Patsy in the Chicago plot. Um, I haven't right. spent a lot of time on them. I've brushed brushed over them, but that's where you get into like Abraham Bolden, the first black Secret Service agent who ends up busting the plot in Chicago, and then they go after him as like a fraud or a thief or something, and they ruined his career. Uh, Joe Biden actually recently pardoned him. Uh, I don't know if you right. know that so he'd been trying to get pardoned his whole life, and Joe Biden did it, so that was a good thing. But um, yeah, so the Chicago plot's wild. The Miami plot is wild involving Manuel Artem and those guys down there in Miami. Really interesting stuff, but it's something that's so far down the list of my my to-do list. You know, I'll probably never get to it. I just think that it's interesting in the context of Oswald. Like he probably Mm -hmm. wasn't one target. There's some file somewhere in the CIA where they had 5, 10, 15 younger men. They were... Mm -hmm. They were curating or something because even Oswald, even when he was at school in New York, like there was Intel connections there and there was weird doctors and stuff like just all. It's just very strange, like his whole life. And the fact that he was with Ferry at 15, like it's just like his life. Like people are like, yeah, we got to (laughs) get we got to do this for Oswald. We got to get Oswald and Atsugi. Atsugi is basically in like Japan. It's a. What's the main Tokyo? It's outside of Tokyo, if I remember. Yeah, it was purely a CIA base. I mean, it was <clears throat> it was for the U two plane and all that stuff. Which, um, based on what I've seen uh, in reference to David Ferry, I'm convinced David Ferry was a U two pilot, and that's why he lost all his hair. 
people try to say he had alopecia, but when you go through his file, he, uh, there's talks about his, they interviewed his doctor. His doctor said he did not have alopecia. His doctor was trying to find some viral cause for it. Um, but uh, when you look into the early U2 pilots, particularly the Chinese U2 pilots, uh, they had the same thing. They Because of the ultra pressurization of the suits, they lost all their hair, could never grow it back. Um, I'm inclined to lean in that direction with Ferry because we have witnesses who put David Ferry with Clay Shaw at the airport in Venice, Florida in 1947, two years before David Ferry is alleged to have been married up in Tampa. So we know David Ferry was living down in Florida at that time, um, which means that uh, if he was seen with Clay Shaw in 47, obviously these guys aren't out there on a picnic. They're obviously working down there for the CIA, which also kind of solidifies the idea that the Venice airport was run by the CIA uh, uh, still at the time when the 9-11 hijackers were using it back in like 2000 or 99, you know? So, yeah, so uh, these guys are lifelong CIA, lifelong. Um, David Ferry was most certainly caught up in all this stuff. His military history is obscured because he's not alleged to have been in, in World War II or done anything like that. Uh, but there is some wreck, and he denies ever having been in the military. But there is records of him having been in military reserves for four years, which he never mentions to anybody, but it's in his record. So what does that mean? Whenever I see reserves, I think intelligence. Reserves is like enough to get, what is it, two two weeks a year and two weekends a month? Like that's enough for anybody to get out of their routine to go do spook stuff. So. Right. No, it's, it's, it's incredible. Yeah, and then he <clears throat> died mysteriously too, right? Didn't they get poisoned or something like that? Right? So David Ferry... <clears throat> His death was deemed natural causes. There were allegedly two suicide notes. You know, um, I just don't know what to think of David Ferry's death. Timing is suspicious. He, he was afraid of getting killed, but then he kills himself. That doesn't really make any sense. You know, then he, but if they murdered him, they did it in a way that didn't leave a trace. Who knows? Um, he was most certainly an inconvenient person, but he never would have folded to Garrison because he pulled the trigger. David Ferry pulled the trigger. So, like, he's never going to give that up. Even right. when you look at the statements that he made to Raymond Brochiers when they were roommates, Brochiers says that David Ferry would get all jacked up on, on, on alcohol or pills or whatever, and he would talk to him about the assassination. But everything that Ferry told him about the assassination was a total lie. He was telling him about he was a getaway pilot and all this stuff. Total fiction. Uh, because David Ferry drove out of Dallas in a... Uh, light-colored Ford Falcon station wagon. He didn't fly out of nothing. So all the stories he gave to people in the years afterwards about his involvement as a pilot, total, totally made up. I feel that David Ferry felt like he needed to vent to people, but he knew he couldn't tell them the truth. And hence, you have statements from people like Jules Rigo Kimball and like Raymond Brochiers, who he told things to. Because um, that's a heavy burden. It's a heavy burden yeah. to have on you that you shot the president and you can't tell anybody, you know? Right, so he, you're, he's your uh, grassy knoll guy, right? Him, uh, he's one of two. Uh, he fired the first shot and struck Kennedy in the throat. From there, he throws his rifle to Andrew Jerome Blackman, who was a seaman who came in on in the Galveston trip, uh, who was allegedly going to meet up with Rose Jeremy to bring in the heroin and all that stuff. Um, she, the Rose Jeremy story is a whole other, a whole other tale. Uh, but uh, Blackman takes the rifle, breaks it down, puts it in a toolbox. This is all seen by a guy named Ed Hoffman. This was all highlighted in The Men Who Killed Kennedy. Uh, the series that talked about um, the assassination. Right. So the guy who made the series and then disappeared. Like, right. Who knows what happened? He like went back to Europe and changed his name or something. <laughs> he got a little too close to the truth, right? Yeah. I mean, but you know, I actually, guy. I had actually found a documentary from about the '80s. Uh, it was British, 
Um, and it was not the men who killed Kennedy. I can't remember what it's called, but they straight up named David Ferry as a shooter on the grassy knoll. And I, at the time I totally dismissed it. I'm like, aha, whatever. And then it was right. It was completely correct. Um, and I was able to basically put together the fact that David Ferry was the first shooter on the grassy knoll based on descriptions of him behind the knoll, walking through the railroad yards behind the railroad yards, sitting in a gray car. And then again with the gray car at the tippet shooting. So I was able to, through matching descriptions, place David Ferry at the scene of the, uh, grassy knoll behind the, uh, behind the picket fence and then behind the book depository. And then again at the tippet shooting where he's seen by three witnesses. So, and the descriptions they give, no one ever says David Ferry, but of course the descriptions they give, uh, are a perfect match of David Ferry, including the the real heavy eyebrows and all, because he painted them on. So that's so strange. What a strange story. The JFK. Oh yes, story. still resonant. Still resonating today. They're not giving away files and. Well, let me talk about that lying. for a minute. Yeah. So there's a in going over the list of files that they're holding onto. I have only found three that I found I believe have any significance whatsoever, and none of them have to do with the assassination. Uh, the files that they're holding onto are in reference to number one, David Morales. That's probably the biggest one that they're holding onto. That will show that David Morales was in, in uh, it was in David Morales was in Dallas that that weekend. Um, then you have files on two guys, uh, Harry Hall or Harry Haller, depending on who you ask. It's a, one of them's an alias. He was a CIA slash mob guy who was connected to Jack Valenti and involved in some sort of. Uh, s- some sort of stolen letterhead from the White House that had Jack Valenti's name on it. Real interesting story, uh, but I believe Jack Valenti was trying to make a side buck while he was in the White House, and one of his co-conspirators got busted, Harry Haller. Those documents are all being uh, withheld. Uh, and then you have documents on a guy named Charles the Blade Taurine. Uh Charles Taurine was a mob hitman, and turns out he was an associate of Valenti. And so I believe those are the three names that they're hiding in the assassination files. None of them have anything to do with the assassination. All of them are going to show relationships with Valenti. And that's pretty much it. And Morales was kind of like a underground tough guy hung out with Sturgis, right? In those yeah. He was a big shot in the CIA and especially after killing Kennedy. His son is still around. I mean, his family's around. <laughs> and I think he died under suspicious circumstances. He went to DC Came back and had a heart attack or something strange. Yeah, you know, I've never actually looked into the David Morales um, at the the end because uh, I know that him, like a lot of the other CIA guys, like William Harvey, ended a life in poverty and like in alcoholism and squander and like not good, right? So Yeah, bitter. um, Bitter too. like Real bitter. Yeah. Yeah. Like he was a horrible guy. Like, I mean, from his perspective, he was a patriot and he would do whatever it took to save America and this and that, right? But hey. He thought saving America meant killing Kennedy. So, I mean, these right. guys, despite their own personal motivations for pay of patriotism, it's not always guided correctly. Yeah, no. I mean, and the killing of Kennedy just set off ferocious war in Southeast Asia. Millions of people died there. Like, they always talk about, like, we lost 50,000 people, which is terrible, and lost a lot of people to madness and drugs. But they ravaged that whole, you know, part of the world. Just yeah. nightmare, nightmare hellscape stuff you know bombings and they were gonna nuke they were gonna nuke johnson was thinking about nuking uh, vietnam it's off the charts yeah it's crazy but, uh, it set off crazy i think kennedy was really trying to keep all that stuff yeah i don't think Pandora's um, box closed yeah i think you're 100 correct i think that uh, the the world we're living in today is a direct result of the killing of kennedy like i can draw a straight line from november 22nd to the, all these bullshit social movements they're pushing on us today, a.k.a. cultural Marxism, you know, 
It's all because they got rid of Kennedy. Kennedy was going to put an end to this before it even got off the ground. That's why they killed him. Yeah, it's crazy. So, it's really crazy. And it led to 9-11, you know, all that stuff. Like, you all that stuff. A, a, a well, I see these as... Um, Robinson. Yeah, yeah. To me, these are all one operation. Like, there's no separating Kennedy from 9-11 from COVID-19. This is one operation, all with the same mission, you know? And the It's the and undermining of American culture. That's what it's all about. It's the destruction of America. That's what that's what Kennedy and everything since has been about. Interesting. And you have, we barely covered the book. You've done such great research. There's other chapters. You go through the assassination, what's going mm-hmm. on at the book depository, yep. the escape from Dealey Plaza, explain who the three tr- tramps are. So, yeah. And all that stuff. So, yeah, there's a lot to it. Uh, I, I tried Tom to answer all the big questions, all the major questions. Who are the three tramps? You know, who was Oswald? Like, who pulled the triggers? Those are the stuff that I tried to to get across. And I, I really didn't try to make Oswald a focus of the book, really. I tried to make everybody else a focus of the book. However, I couldn't because the impersonation and the setup of Oswald was so intricately linked to the shooters that it was hard to separate. So, therefore... Or, you know, going through all the Carrie Thornley stuff. And, and then once you get into Carrie Thornley, that leads right to Tippett, right? So it was, it all, everything was connected and all led back to each other. So that's why I ended up covering the subjects that I did. But I, honestly, it's weird. I wrote almost 400 pages and I didn't even talk about the mob at all, right? I could write a whole book just on the mob involvement. That aspect right. is crazy. I didn't even talk about that at all. And then there's the Israelis and I didn't even get, right. I didn't even touch on them whatsoever. That's going to be like... The, the Israel Jewish interests are around, surrounding this. Oh, too. they were behind the assassination 100% start to finish. And But that's going to take a whole book to explain. That's going to that's gonna be years from now, unfortunately. Herman Dex and the elites. Like, they had to... They well, had to... The biggest thing was the relationship between the Israelis and the L.A. mob. When you come to understand the relationship between the L.A. mob and the Israelis, you're like, this is one organization. They are not separate. There is no separating the Mossad and the mob in 1963. They are one organization in lockstep with all their decisions and everything. Because the mob was run by Meyer Lansky. And Meyer Lansky was a diehard Zionist. I mean, if it wasn't for Meyer Lansky, there would not be a state of Israel today. That's almost... That's almost fact. That's a bold statement. That's bold yeah. Statement, yeah. Yeah. The mob, if it wasn't for the mob and the relationship with the Israeli, the pre-Israeli Zionists, I call them like Ben Gurion and Shane Wiseman and Menachem Begin and Shamir and all these guys. If it wasn't for the relationship with Meyer Lansky, there might not be in Israel today. Um, there's a great article called Gangsters of Zion. I forget who wrote it, but Gangsters, oh, Gangsters for Zion. Um, and that talks about the relationship that started in 46 with, um, between Reuven Daphne and the LA mob and shows how the relationship built up leading to in 48. And if it wasn't for the large scale weapon smuggling and money laundering that was being done by Meyer Lansky, the Israelis never would have had the money to do what they did. So yeah, it's right, yeah. crazy they were up stuff. against a lot of forces. I mean, a lot of, I mean, basically the whole Arab world wanted to get rid of Israel. Um, oh yeah. Corey, we're at the hour mark. Is there anything you'd like to add? Anything I've missed and where can people find the book? Um, so you get the book at all the online major retailers, but it really does me a big uh, service if you buy it from uh, buymeacoffee.com slash JFK book. Um, there, you can also buy a couple other things. You can get my book. Um, you can get access to my private uh, research chat. Um, I have uh, limited edition posters coming of the book cover. And also you can buy my notes. That's the biggest thing. Um, you can buy a copy of my notes with a copy of the book. And it's got like all the documents, all the pictures, all the stuff that is in the book you can see the actual documents that support it. So yeah, the pictures you showed me last time I'd never seen before. And you said it was buymeacoffee.com forward slash slash JFK book. Yeah. So that's the best place to buy it. Or if you go to coreyhughes.org, all the links are there too. Okay. And so you you can be found. Is that the best place to reach you if people want to follow up with you? Oh yeah. And you can contact me through there also. Gotcha. And I'll put uh, a link to your book, buy me a coffee and 
your website in the show notes so people can just click through. But Great. Uh, thanks so much for your time and thanks for the book. I mean, it's super timely to get it out there right now. And uh, I wish you all success. And uh, I appreciate that. I really do. Thank you for having me on. All right, Corey, take care. Stay there. Stay there.